Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at the, um, we're, we're coming to the end of our, this year's uh, Vipassana study. I think this is class 26 or 27, so we got five or six to go. I am going to add one sutta to the end of this and probably include it in the book, is the Upada Sutta. Um, should have been in there right from the start. Uh, this sutta, and basically for the rest of, of this particular study, this is more about what the Dhamma practice actually looks like. We we found out what the point of the Buddha's Dhamma is, is, is undoing the effects of dependent origination. Uh, a mind that's rooted in ignorance will develop a fabricated view of itself and a fabricated view of the world, uh, known as wrong view. And so the Dhamma takes us from that wrong view to a right view. That's the whole point. Uh, we've learned that there's nothing magical, myst- mystical, or speculative about the Dhamma. It's entirely practical. Uh, we've, we found out in the most recent weeks that... Uh, this understanding lies not out in the cosmos, not in some grand consciousness, but this understanding that the Buddhist teaching lies within each and every individual. And that individuality, the discreteness of each human being is important, rather than to compulsively decide that we're all part of one big collective, which effectively annihilates the self, doesn't it, when you think that way? And that's not something the Buddha taught. Uh, so now, <clears throat> the setting for this sutta is... <clears throat> One of the um, members of the original Sangha that, uh, that you can tell through the Sutta itself <clears throat> has a basic and maybe a rather thorough understanding of the Buddha's Dhamma. But Ananda found out that Jiri Mananda is in some distress and he goes to the Buddha, his cousin, uh, for advice. And why wouldn't you go to the Buddha for advice? And here's the Sutta. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying in Savati, in Jita's grove, Anatha Pandika's monastery. Venerable Jiramanda, or Hiramanda, was sick and distressed. <clears throat> Ananda went to the Buddha and asked if he would, if he would visit Jiramanda out of sympathy for him. His cousin responded, Ananda, if you would go to Jiramanda and tell him of these ten understandings, it is possible that upon hearing your words, his distress will be relieved. So, how could this magically happen? That Ananda, the messenger, simply goes to Jiramananda and gives these powerful and magical words from the Buddha and instantaneously Jiramananda is healed of his distress. <clears throat> Many people will believe that's just what occurred. Of course, the Buddha is just telling Ananda, go and remind him of what he already knows. And in that remembrance, it will change his mind. He'll, he'll regain the Dhamma. He'll regain understanding. And by regaining the Dhamma, by regaining understanding, his, his distress, his, his stress will be relieved. That's the whole point of the Dhamma. So this is a direct teaching on the Dhamma. When you feel distress, Examine these ten understandings. How prevalent are you in the world? This is such a profound teaching. And this is one of those teachings, one of those suttas among many, where I say this, the Dhamma is so simple. Because if we're questioning where we are, if we're doubting where we are, if we feel confused, or we're, we're, we're rudderless, we don't know where we are within our Dhamma, <coughs> this is another sutta we can read and we know where we're going. 
These are the 10 understandings you should teach to your Mananda. One, the understanding of impermanence. The Buddha starts out with the most important understanding. This Dhamma practitioner, well secluded, well, well, while established, sorry, this Dhamma practitioner, well secluded, while establishing jhana. So he's not, he's saying that this is for Dhamma practitioners, not for Arahants, awakened practitioners. While establishing jhana, knows that the five clinging aggregates, form, feelings, perceptions, mental fabrications, and ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, known as consciousness, are all impermanent. This is called understanding impermanence. What are the five clinging aggregates? The five clinging aggregates are the Buddha's description of the ongoing personal experience of ignorance. It just happens to be the words that the Buddha uses to describe these things, and it's what we've learned up until this point. So the Buddha is now telling Ananda, Jiramananda, and us, 2,600 years later, it's right here. This understanding that you're looking for is within your aggregates, and within what you think is you. Of course, we know that the five clinging aggregates aren't I. They're a fabrication of what we are. And it's a fabrication that's formed, or it's a fabrication that is housed and manifested in our forms, in our feelings. We express what we think in our feelings. Those feelings lead to perceptions about the world. Perceptions lead to concrete fabrications, which leads to consciousness, the way that we think in the world. So housed in this form, this thing that we call us, that isn't us, we decide what we are, we form opinions about what we are, and then thought constructs based on those opinions. What are those opinions based on? Not reality, they're based on fabrications. And so our ongoing consciousness, now part of this collective thing, the only collective thing in the universe, by the way, called the five clinging aggregates. That is where we're addressing these ten understandings. And in the... If you heard this sutta, if this was the only Buddha sutta you ever heard, excuse me, or maybe the only sutta you know came from the Buddha, you'd think this guy is crazy, or you would apply this in ways that would be grasping after concepts that fit your view of yourself. And if your view of yourself was that you were part of one grand consciousness, you'll take this single sutta and corrupt it to fit that view. But we know because we've now taken 25 classes up until this point, among the hundreds and thousands that we've taken before that, but just in this one particular study, we know what we're referring to, don't we? We know what the five clinging aggregates are referring to, and so we know where to apply these ten understandings. Two, the understanding of not-self, impermanence not-self. This is just what we're doing in this study. The understanding of not-self, this Dhamma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, does not self-identify with what is, what is seen or what is heard or what is smelled or what is touched or what is tasted or what is thought. Everything that come in contact with, everything that would come in contact with our senses, we realize is not a reliable view when that view is rooted in ignorance. They have developed restraint at the sixth sense base. Excuse me. So something we talk about often in this class, in these classes, is the refined mindfulness that we develop through jhana meditation that allows us to interpret what's coming through our sixth sense base, the way that we interface with the external world, the way we take information in, in the external world, is now rooted in understanding. And so at that point, each and every 
engagement with the world will lead to peace. And if not, if we end up like Jiramananda does, we find ourselves in distress, even though we've been practicing the, the Dhamma like Jiramananda, but like Jiramananda, we may have forgotten how to get back. Ten understandings. They have developed restraint at the sixth sense base. This is called understanding not self. So if we're really confused, frustrated, grasping, we don't know, we can't understand what that crazy bald-headed guy is saying in every class. What does he mean about not? That doesn't make any sense. This makes sense. Understanding not self is understanding the reaction that we take through our senses. And if our senses are reporting distress, what do we know? What do we know when our, our senses are reporting distress, Becky? I don't mean to put you on a spot, but I think you know the answer. When in this moment, we, my mind is frustrated and agitated. We and know we're, we're, we're grasping and we're not, we're not, uh, we're not in right view and we're taking something personally. That's it. That's it. Stop. <laughs> Gold star. That's it. Anytime. And how are we taking it personally? Think about what Becky just said in response to what I just said and what in the, in the sutta. We take things personally from our senses. What does that tell us? As Dharma practitioners, it tells us initially we better not trust our senses. It doesn't mean we should walk around in doubt because that's where our mind rooted in ignorance will go. Oh, I should be afraid of everything. I can't trust my senses. No. That's a liberating thought that you can't trust your senses because you're moving your mind away from something that it trusted in and shouldn't have to something that it can rely on unequivocally its own mind resting in understanding. And why shouldn't you and why couldn't you trust your mind if it's resting in reality? The only reason we can't trust ourselves is because we know we're not in reality. And it goes back, to, I think it was the last class I talked about, yeah it was because I remember I was crying. The last class about the little boy who yelled at his mommy when he was five years old and, and didn't understand where that anger came from and that conditioned his thinking for the rest of his life, that's what I'm talking about here as well. And so because we don't understand, I didn't understand how I could cause such harm to someone that I love by just voicing what I thought was how I felt. Of course, I had no, no context. I'm five years old. But that's a, we, have, we have no context as 45 or 65-year-olds if we're not rooted in, in reality, are we? There's no context for our lives. And so we're fearful. We're distressed like Hiramananda. Hiramananda. I keep going back to how Ram says it and I say it. I think Ram is right, but... I'm not going to give in yet. Uh, listen, I'm the one that's right here. Um, and the point I'm trying to make here, and I think the sutta makes it very clearly, is the problem lies within each and every one of us. When we know we're distressed, what do we do? Understand. Understand that distress. Number three, the understanding of unattractiveness. Now, remember we talked about in the last class about how the body, the Buddha, the Buddha, the Buddha <laughs> teaches us how to clearly see our body as it really is. It's this wonderful vehicle that carries us from birth to death and allows us to live a human life. But it also is prone to sickness, aging, and death. It also is prone to being, being uh, upon death to be to reveal its inner unattractiveness. 
as the body dies, it starts producing pus and odor and smells. It releases what's inside its, its, uh, its digestive tract. Animals pick at it. Birds take its eyeballs out. What are we so enamored with? That's why the Buddha teaches us. He's not trying to disgust us. He's trying to say, what the hell are you so enamored with? That's what you're, that's what you're defining your life on. It's clinging to that form when it ends up just like that. And even during that, even during the process of birth to death, it's full of a lot of funky stuff that we don't even want to think about, do we? And all of those processes, those inner processes that we take for granted are all impermanent and they're all going to come to an end at some point. And yet we're trusting this, this form, this feeling, these perceptions, these fabrications, this consciousness to carry us through forever. And when we started realizing, like Siddhartha does when he first, Siddhartha did when he first left the palace grounds, when we first started understanding the ramifications of death, meaning I don't care that everybody else is dying, what I really care about is I'm going to. It scares the hell out of us, doesn't it? Because this mind, rooted in ignorance, attempted to establish a permanent self. Why did it do it? Why did a human mind that should know better, knows that it can't last forever, Create this fabrication and create scenarios for it to achieve immortality. This human mind is so brilliant that it created an endless list of religions to do just that. And it created an endless list of spiritual beliefs, spiritual philosophies, coupled with existential threats to say that we should be grasping after anything but understanding this body. We've set up the world and its systems to continually have us grasping after things that deny reality. It's the perfect vehicle for continued ignorance. The Loka Sutta, I looked out on the world and the world is a flame, a flame with what? A flame with a fire is a passion. That has not changed. And where did that understanding arise within Siddhartha? In his understanding of ignorance. It's not a condemnation of humanity. In fact, it's the most liberating thought that any human being can have. I'm ignorant of who I am in relation to the world I live in. The understanding of, un, of unattractiveness. This Dhamma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, notice how the Buddha always relates these ten understandings that they're founded in jhana. We have to have jhana meditation first. They know that the entire body, surrounded by skin and filled with decay and unclean things, Right from the get-go, as soon as we're born. They know there is this body of hair, nails, teeth, skin, muscle, tendons, bone, marrow, organs, feces, urine, phlegm, sweat, tears. Understanding this, they are always mindful of the unattractiveness of the body. Um, I think everybody here... Tommy, have you ever heard this that line before, the unattractiveness of the body? No, but I think it on a daily basis. <laughs> You're a very humble man. Thank you. Uh, this, this is a thing that everybody except Tommy does not want to look, think about. How, many, how, many, how often do we think about the unattractiveness of our own bodies? Unless if it's in a very self-centered way. You know, I wish I was taller. I wish I was thinner. I wish I was fatter. I wish I was this. I wish I was that. And that's not what I'm talking about. To really understand the unattractiveness of the body. That when I'm complaining about sickness, aging, and death, when I'm complaining about a 65-year-old who, that my, oh, my vision is going, and I can't walk anymore. Oh, what an awful thing. 
what good is that? that? That's a sign that I've lost my mind, isn't it? It's a, it's a sign that I don't understand what's going on. Because if I understand that every human life is prone to sickness, aging, and death, then I can't take it personally. But if I did, if I did, I'd be a fool, wouldn't I? I would be a fool, not a fool as a human being. I would be a fool in relation to being a human being. So when I say that, I say it that way because I'm not condemning myself or human beings because we act foolishly. We act foolishly because we're ignorant. It's not our nature to be fools, is it? It's not our, well, maybe you could say it's our nature to be ignorant until we do something about it. But that something to do about it is open to every one of us. It's open to every one of us. And it's especially clear to those that have already come to the Dhamma. We don't have any excuse, unfortunately. Or maybe fortunately. Number four, the understanding of drawbacks. The understanding of what the Buddha is referring to is the drawbacks of, any, of even the shred of ignorance. The understanding of drawbacks. This Dhamma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, reflects on the drawbacks of the body. They understand the various pains of the body, such as disease of the senses. Disease, again, think about the Buddha 2,600 years ago, and he's talking about diseases of the senses, much like somebody might talk about today, because we know much more about the diseases of the senses, don't we? We know about macular degeneration. We know about brain disease. We know about liver disease. They didn't, they didn't classify these things back then, but the Buddha's referring to the, all these things. The various pains of the body, such as disease of the senses, disease of the organs, disease of the minds, this ease of the body, this ease from changing weather. This is understanding the drawbacks. As a consequence of having a human life, there's going to be suffering. John, isn't it also just, it, he's telling you your utter lack of control that you go through life yeah. thinking that somehow we have a semblance of control beyond just taking basic care of yourself? But beyond that, the, the, the teaching of emptiness is we don't have control of these aggregates, so why take it personal? Yes. Yes. Thank you, David. Again, we have, and he teaches that in almost every sutta that relates directly to not-self, to anatta, the Buddha teaches just that. And so um, it's the key theme of the Dhamma, it's the key theme of the study that we're doing right now, and it's the reason why we keep coming back to this. And it's the one thing that, um, it's the one thing that was never addressed, and I, I'm not putting anybody, any other Buddhist practice down, but this, is, this was my experience. The, this understanding of not-self, the way the Buddha teaches it, is the one thing that was never, well, there's a lot of things that were never addressed, but it's the, the key thing that was never addressed in all the other schools that I studied in. And maybe, there, maybe I missed it. Maybe there's one out there that I missed. I'm just saying my experience, and it's rather extensive, is that modern Buddhism does not address this key issue. They, they negate the self. They annihilate the self by providing a mystical experience of nothingness or, not, or emptiness or the dimension of etc., etc. These, these fabricated establishment. Or even the establishment of uh, the largest... And I don't need to keep saying that. Or the establishment in some type of Buddhist heaven by doing certain acts like chanting or bowing. Uh, again, maybe that's possible. And I, and I remember when I started the bowing, uh, the, the thing in the, in the Tibetan, the Galukpa uh, tradition, which is you do 108,000 bows before you, before you can start your Dhamma practice. And I started that. Um, and I was diligent about it. 
uh, for about three three minutes. But uh, the reason why I did it is I believed it. I wanted to be saved. And because I believed it, even though I thought it was pretty ridiculous, and is anybody really going to notice this 108,000 bows? And who's noticing? And I hope that there's a hole in the ceiling so God can look down through the hole and see me. What well, nonsense. It was just ridiculous. But I believed it. I talked myself and thought myself into that ridiculous spot where I'm, I'm doing, I'm sitting in my, in my house with my dog looking at me with these big eyes like, what the hell's the matter with this guy going up and down, up and down, up and down? Because I thought it would save me. Because I believed I needed salvation. And maybe it's true, but the one thing that wasn't, maybe the idea that I could establish myself somehow in this way is true. But it's not true in relation to a human life, is it? And that's why I stopped immediately. Because I find, and maybe it was that nonsense that finally got me to realize what I was doing, the extreme view I was stuck in. Because I finally realized, wait a minute. I've been chasing myself, chasing understanding that would chase me out of this life. And I was doing it to myself. And there was well-intentioned people all around me that were saying, yeah, keep going, keep going. You can't awaken yet. It takes endless years, but keep going, keep going, keep going. Keep coming back. And it kept getting more and more frustrating because I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere until I finally practiced what the Buddha taught. And then I realized he's teaching you, take a look here. All you have to do is understand this and you're good to go. And I, and I knew that I could understand this. In the beginning, I was like he's describing to Ananda and Jiramananda. That I was establishing jhana. It wasn't quite established yet, but I was establishing jhana. And I was developing these ten understandings. And eventually it is these ten understandings that liberated me from all the stress and suffering of before. The understanding of abandoning... The understanding of abandoning means we have to be willing to let go of the things we're clinging to. This Dharma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, abandons thoughts of sensuality, all thoughts of ill will, all thoughts of harmfulness, all unskillful mental qualities. What, what are these mental qualities and how would they manifest? Well, in general, these mental qualities all manifest in one of three ways, in wrong speech, wrong action, and wrong livelihood. They always will. They cannot not manifest in those. And so those three aspects of the Eightfold Path do cover the entire gamut of human behavior. And while, while in reflection we might notice specific aspects of right speech, right action, right livelihood, it's always good to bring our Dhamma practice back to that. This is not right speech. In other words, gossip is not right speech. When you recognize that you're caught up in gossip, gossip give it the broader label as well. I'm stuck in right speech. I'm, I'm stuck in wrong speech. Because then we can get too micro-focused on one aspect of it instead of realizing I need to elevate my speech all the way to the level of awakened right speech. This is understanding abandoning. Number six, the understanding of dispassion. Key to the Dhamma, isn't it? This Dhamma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, understands this is peace. We understand it. We have to come and experience it ourselves or we're not going to be able to uh, we won't be able to recognize it and we won't, won't be able to continually establish it. We know this is peace. This is the exquisite stillness of fabrications. This is the relinquishment of all clinging. This is the cessation of craving. Imagine not having a moment of craving. You'll know it when you have it. This is the full development of dispassion. This is complete unbinding. This is understanding dispassion. <coughs> 
So you know you still have a little bit of passion left for your continued eye making if you haven't unbound from things that are causing you distress and distraction. And it really is that simple. And as we start developing the Dhamma, I talked a little bit more about using the Dhamma to, to check ourselves and then be assured that we're doing the right thing. And it is at this point that we, do, do, that we can do this. Do you find that your Dhamma practice is developing just a, the, the smallest measure of calm? If it is, notice it and relate it back to this, to this sutta. Yes, you are developing one of these understandings. You are developing this passion. Every time you notice a calming mind, notice that you're developing this passion. Because the, the Buddha teaches us here that if we're feeling a measure of a lessening of this passion, of, of passion, that we know that we're diminishing eye-making. And it really is that one-to-one -one, um, correlation. And we have to notice that if we're going to continue. At some point, the, the Dhamma practice has to be, um, it has to be entirely self-motivating. That's not necessary in the beginning, but at some point, our Dhamma practice, in another way to say it, it might be that it takes a life of its own, but it's not. It's not something acting outside of us. But we have so developed the, to the Dhamma to the point we are, where we are now, we have developed the inner poise that the Buddha teaches often. And that inner poise will now guide our Dhamma practice as part of us. And we are now at this point where we are now can understand the understanding of cessation. This Dhamma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, understands this is peace. This is the exquisite stilling of fabrication. This is the relinquishment of all clinging. This is the cessation of craving. This is the full development of passion. This is complete unbinding. By the way, the, uh, please. This section, you got the ending, ending of it uh, mixed up. I do? Yeah. How so? Because um, this is the same text as the previous one on dispassion, but oh. the, uh, the original text says. The ending of it is, this is understanding cessation. Let me look at that. I think there's a... I looked it up in, in, in um, uh, Tanisara's um, translation. It, it's just... A, um, oh, I know what it the, yeah. the, the, the anything more than anything else. Yeah, it, it's the, the reason why I changed that is that the understanding of cessation is the same and the... And the, and the uh, the development of it is the same. Right, because all of these are, you know, uh, understanding of dispassion, this is understanding dispassion. Understanding of cessation, this is understanding cessation. Enough, the beginning well, and the ending of, of every paragraph is the same. Yes, it should be. And this one, you, you end this one, this is... Oh, complete, I see what you're saying. on binding. Oh, yeah, and it... I. I'm, I'm getting caught up in the whole thing. I think yeah. I'm not going to go. I'm not trying to think it out right now, but I think that's the point: is getting to that point that this is the complete unbinding. Is it, it's building from that dispassion to unbinding. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm just throwing that out there right now because I don't want to think about it anymore. <laughs> Thank you. I will. I'm going to look at it later. Oh, yeah. Number eight: the unbinding of of distaste for ev for every world, every world. Why is the Buddha talking about that when he's always talking about stay away from magics and, and mystical? Speculative establishment. Because he's telling you to stay away from the why he's saying establishment. It. The understanding of distaste for every world. So the Buddha is saying it's not just this world we've got to live in because we have all these fabricated worlds that we're piling on ourselves. 
This Dharma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, refrains from all worldly entanglements, attachments, compulsions, and conditioned thinking. This is understanding distaste for every world. I, I gotta, just want to say, because Ron brought it up, he, he said the Tanisero's um, translation. Many of my um, suttas that I've restored, uh, 85% at least, come from Tanisero's translations. Where, and I just got an email about this that I haven't answered. I hope it, was it from one of you? I hope not, because I haven't answered yet. But it was, what do you think about Tanisero and how does he relate to you? Um, Tanisero is a Theravudan monk, Theravudan, Theravadan monk. He's, he's an incredibly brilliant man, incredibly sincere. And his translations, like every other translator, no matter how scholarly they are, cannot help but be clouded by their own form of Buddhism. And in this case, Tanisero's form of Buddhism is, ter- is Theravadan, which means that he's heavily influenced on, by the Abhidhamma, which is a book that the Buddha didn't write, and it's very magical and mystical and speculative. And whenever I read anything, I can see that influence inf- instantly. And that's what I, when I use Tanisero's translations, obviously I take out all the mysticism and magic that would be rooted in the Abhidhamma. And I would say, in my sense, in my words, not Tanisero's words, that corrupts the Dhamma. And it's that, and again, I'm not calling Tanisero corrupted. From my point of view, when you add anything to what the Buddha taught, it's a corruption of the Dhamma and it stops making sense. The, anybody that's ever read the Abhidhamma, I feel sorry for you. I did and it hurt. It still hurts to this day. I'm just, I'm just kidding about that. It's just a <coughs> brutal read that has nothing to do in reality. I, and I, had to, I just want to say that because some of you might not know, know that where it comes from, but if you read the website, you'll get that too. Nine. The understanding of the undesirable undesirability of all fabrications. This Dharma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, is horrified, humbled, and repulsed with fabrications. And that's just what happened to me when I started, when I quieted my mind just enough to realize the fabrications. And one of the fabrications I remembered was the fabrication I put on that little boy at five years old. And it was just that palpable. And that's how I could deal with it. Because then I could deal with it out of understanding. It wasn't out of analysis. It wasn't going through blaming, blaming the, the five-year-old boy that didn't know better, or the, 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 the mother, well, not the mother, uh, the, the birthing person that, should, that I think should have known better. She didn't know better. She would, and we do that with all situations. And we carry it around forever until we do something directly to bring... <clears throat> In this case, let's say um, 25 years of dragging that, more than that, 30 years at least of dragging that and other compounding and piling on conditions up to that point. And then as we learned in here, when I apply these 10 understandings to what happened, and I didn't mean that it had to be through an analysis, it's just my general makeup right now is carrying... Everything that we've ever done as human beings does something that's called conditioned us. We, that, that's just part of being a human being. And by the way, it's a necessary part. It's not a... Um, having a mind that can become conditioned is not a human flaw because if we couldn't condition our minds, we couldn't condition them towards awakening also, which is what we're doing until we awaken. Then we are free of condition. So it's a, it's a, it's a component 
it's an ordinary component of a human mind to be to 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 be able to be conditioned. And so it is all part of that this awakening experience to recognize and abandon that conditioning. It's the whole point of it. It's not right or wrong. So there's the, the what I'm talking about is so there's no reason, no good reason, no skillful reason to analyze the fabrication. To think we got to pick at it. Where did it come from? How did it do it? How did it affect me? Recognize that my mind is fabricated. Let go of the need to continue to fabricate. And that five-year-old boy and every other fabrication that he, he attached himself to since then is gone. It doesn't take 25 years of therapy to undo 25 years of human life. It just takes a moment of jhana and understanding. And it's done. It is, already, <clears throat> it is already gone at that time. It is. You just don't realize it. Yes, and it's the realization of it that, that needs jhana, isn't it? You need to be well-focused and notice that you're waking up. Number 10. <clears throat> the understanding of mindfulness of in-and-out breathing. The Buddha concludes with inner, mindfulness of in-and-out breathing, jhana meditation. This Dharma practitioner, well-secluded, Sits comfortably, legs folded, or if you can sit in a chair, the body erect, setting mindfulness to the fore. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness of the fore is mindfulness of the breath and the body. Remaining mindful of the breath and the body, they breathe in. This is the concluding understanding. Understanding how to meditate. That's what the Buddha is teaching here. Remaining mindful of the, of the breath and the body, they breathe in. We do that. Remaining mindful of the breath and the body, they breathe out. Anybody can do it, right? Even a child. While breathing in long, with long breaths, they know they are breathing with long breaths. So this comes out of the, uh, both the Satipatthana and the Anapanasati Sutta and a few others, where the Buddha says just these words. And compulsive feverish minds are now making a meditation practice out of just long breaths. And I've been in sessions like that. We're going to use this, the teaching of the Buddha on the long breath meditation. And we'll spend three or four hours just long breathing. It was the most aggravating thing I've ever done. And the Buddha's not teaching that as a meditation. He's simply saying, if you find that you're taking a long breath, notice that it's a long breath. He's just saying, notice the quality of your breath. That's all. He's not teaching that, you're, that the length of breath or the shortness of a breath is a practice. Just no, noticing the breath is a practice. While breathing with short breaths, they know that they are breathing with short breaths. There's nothing here that the Buddha says, breathe long or breathe short. However you find yourself breathing, just notice it. This Dharma practitioner trains themselves. I will breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to the body. Meaning, you're noticing that you're in your body. It doesn't mean anything else other than that. What is the Sensitive and sensual are two different words, does it? They have the same Latin root. To sense, but that's not. But the, the result is two different things in this context, isn't it? So sensitive to the body. Another word for sensitive would be I am aware of the body, or mindful of the body, because I have to be focused of the on the body in some way to be in the body, don't I? I've just become sensitive to the body by being mindful of the breath. Is everybody clear on how I did that? Taking a breath. Excuse me. While breathing in, bodily fabrications calm. It's not my intention. I'm not breathing in to calm my bodily fabrications. As a consequence of breathing in and breathing out, 
in that moment, my fabrications have calmed in my mind, and they're in there because my mind is now united in my body. The fabrications in my body have calmed, and it may just be for that. I was going to say for that moment, but for that experience, what is the experience? This, and for that entire cycle, the in breath and the out breath, that I'm only mindful of my breath, the fabrications of my that I have created about myself in the world have still. A human mind cannot think of two things at the same time, no matter how, how feverishly we've been trying to multitask all these years. We can put our thoughts pretty close together and do some remarkable things in the, with that way of thinking, because it also drives ourselves crazy. So we take a breath, and my mind is now united in my body. Now I can do Dhamma practice. And in the next moment, I've lost my mind again. How do I know that I've lost my mind again? Well, off my cushion, I'm likely to get distressed, like Jiramananda did. And what do I do at that point? I remember these ten understandings and ground myself in it. Breathing out, bodily fabrications calm. This Dharma practitioner trains themselves to breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to joy. Notice it. Be mindful of it when it arises. Sensitive to pleasure and sensitive to to mental processes. It's just be sensitive to how your mind is working, what's going on in your mind. And we do that in a dispassionate way, not grasping after your mind. And I'm not, this is not a comment on therapy. Therapy has led many people to, to actually be able to develop the Dhamma. But understand, therapy can only take you so far. And this is, this is kind of the, the reference to that. Because therapy will always be focused on The cause, and the cause within that framework is always a fabrication. And as many people taught, including one of my teachers, what we focus on will generally expand. So at some point we have to get past the analysis and enter into this is simply what's occurring. And as I stated earlier, everything that's ever happened in our lives, everything, is housed or present in the five clinging aggregates right here and right now. And it's one of the reasons why Dharma practitioners do not need to rehash every moment of their lives in order to awaken. In fact, it's the main reason why we shouldn't be doing that. Because in general, which is all we need to deal with, fabrications are housed in our body right here and right now. And that's what we're dealing with. The present quality of our mind. And it's the only quality of mind that we can deal with, what's present. Correct? No matter what has happened up until this point, it's a culmination of my life. That's what I'm dealing with. This Dharma practitioner trains themselves to breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to the calming of mental processes. That's what we're doing. This Dharma practitioner trains themselves to breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to thoughts arising and passing away. Lorna was brilliant on this, as seeing that as, a, as the metaphor for an understanding of impermanence. This Dharma practitioner trains themselves to breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to satisfying the mind. All we have to do to satisfy the mind is to breathe in and breathe out. Because once that mind is united in its body, it's home. It's achieved everything that it was trying to do up until that point and trying to do it through external circumstances. Because external circumstances, grasping after those external circumstances, are the way the mind fabricates to establish itself. It's looking for its home. And when it's told that it can't find a home here, then it starts fabricating magical, mystical homes for itself. Do you see how it happens? And it's all rooted in this ignorance. 
all those magical fabrications root, are rooted in that same initial fabrication. Same initial fabrication. And doesn't it all point to the fourth foundation? Oh, yeah. And that's what the, thank you, David. That it, this all leads to our, our awareness of anything that arises. So therefore, when you're off the cushion, because your concentration has increased, the fourth foundation is kind of like real life. Yes, and, and thank you, David. So that what the Buddha just taught us here and in the four foundations of mindfulness and other suttas, and David just reminded us is, that fourth foundation of mindfulness is awakening, a mind resting in equanimity. Resting in equanimity. And that's what we're, we developed that directly through meditation, meaning the experience of it, and then we solidify it, we lock it in through ongoing Dhamma practice. Let me continue. This Dhamma practitioner trains themselves to breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to impermanence. Breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to dispassion. Breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to cessation. Breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to relinquishment. And each and every breath has those four components. We don't have to be mindful of each one, but that's what's occurring. This is called mindfulness of in and out breathing. Ananda, go to the ill Jiramananda and tell him of these ten understandings. If Jiramananda develops these, uh, these understandings, his disease may be relieved. They may be relieved. The Buddha is speaking of the impermanence in, within Jiramananda. Ananda, having learned these ten understandings from the Buddha, went to Jiramananda. Jiramananda, hearing Ananda, was relieved. His disease was abandoned. Simply hearing those words. And I trust that ours was too today. Thank you, Watts. The end of the sutta. Uh, let's go online and let's start with Brian. Brian, how are you? Good, sir. Thank you for this. Um, Thank you. The, the piece on the conditioning uh, hit home. Um, I had an interaction with my father a couple weeks ago and just, just watching his mannerism, just realizing that, that I have conditioned myself to, to avoid whatever he does, right? And just like this weight was lifted, just understanding that the 40 years of, you know, just seeing that, right, in reality, and I, I don't have to attach to that or avoid it or, or anything. It just, just is what it is. It, just, it was just a, such a huge weight, so thank you. Yeah, thank you, Brian. I remember uh, I was probably in my 30s, you know, mid-30s or something, and looking at different things. Um, I was probably just getting over my... Uh, Maxwell Moss, Abraham Maslow stage self-realization. Um, and I was, I was thinking, about, none of this was really clear, but I was thinking about kind of this, this subject in my own mind, about the things that had happened to me up until that point. And I understood that my experience was creating the person I was. I understood myself at least that much. But my thought was that as I get older, I'm getting, I'm getting more and more confused. And... Uh, that had me even grasping further at the practices I was at, which got me even deeper confused. And so this condition that I had was compelling me to find a, a resolution. And it's such a, um, it's, it's that, that underlying thing that I keep saying human beings are rooted in self-loathing because I wouldn't be thinking that way really my entire life unless somehow I bought into the fact that there's something wrong with me. Either there's something lacking or something 
organically wrong. I, you know, I got into a lot of trouble when I was a teenager, so I, people were, it was reinforced in me that I was a bad person, so I bought into that. And as you grow up, you, you take on all these things. And everything that we acquire, I bet you we've all had this feeling. We don't understand how we're going to get rid of it and get to something better. And most of that just changes by living life. We make different decisions, we do different things, and so our life changes. But that underlying gnawing feeling that there's something wrong with me persists until we do something to change it. And that's, that's what Brian just got insight into that this morning, too. Thank you, Brian. Mateo, good morning. How are you? Um, I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, I don't have so much to, to, to add. Uh, just a fun story. I remember when I used to live in China, I had this bowing experience when I moved to Tibet. And for one month, like every day, I had to bow, bow. I was like asking to the monk, like, what's next so what what we learned today what we do and he keep like telling me just bowing and i remember after one month like i was a bit pissed off i said so can we do something else can you tell me something about buddhism and this guy just admitted to me no i don't know what to tell you you need to bow in first for years and then we can start teaching yeah <laughs> you, you you found that practice and it, it what what did you think at that time Mateo? did it seem reasonable at the time or I don't know, I was, I was in, um, a, in that period of a mystical, I think, or maybe I can became a mystic, so I need to go to Tibet and doing that. Yeah. I wasn't very convinced. I just do what they told me, but then it's like, that's nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought it was too. I just couldn't. And I, I've had, uh, I have some good friends of mine that see bowing as a concentration practice. It's just the, repet the repetitiveness of the bowing increases concentration. Yeah. I don't think so. You know, at least it's not what the Buddha taught that does it. But thank you, Matteo. Ah, uh, Tom, how are you? Hi, John. Um, very good. Very good. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, thanks for the teaching. Um, just very quickly, a couple of things. First of all, we're quite we're quite excited. Alex and I have bought, bought our flights to to the US, so we're looking forward to the retreats. In, all right. In, in the oh, wow. I'll get the Yay. registration out this week too. Great to great to meet you guys in uh, in person. Yeah, um, right. You're gonna you, you guys want a double room or you want singles? I'll put them aside uh, now. I think if the double room has two beds, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I'll discuss it with Alex. But... All right. I have to check if Alex is a snorer or not. No rush. <laughs> um, but there's only three single rooms, so. Oh, okay, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll decide on that in the next one or two days. All right. I'll, I'll email you. Um, and then, um, just, just very quickly, actually. Um, so, I, I've been quite sort of successful in, in really having a sort of once, uh, every morning having a, a practice. Um, what about for the afternoon what a second practice. I find it a lot more difficult because I've just got, um, you know, so much going on in my life and work and whatnot. Yeah. Do, you, do you have any advice or tips for that on, on just developing that, that, that habit, like anything that helped you um, or, or anything that's helped someone else? Yeah. Um, making time for it. It's so much more difficult when your mind is, you know, rushing everywhere and busy yeah. with so many things. When I first started jhana meditation, I was very busy in my... I had a construction business. Um, and I was always busy. Uh, and I always came up against that. You know, at the end of the I had no trouble meditating in the morning. Um, but getting home from work, tired, phone calls till 9 o'clock. You know, the second sit just wasn't there. Um, 
And even when I started doing it, it was very, very difficult. But then I found out the secret to creating a habit was to do something over and over again, <laughs> which is what I did. And I, and I, I, sound, I don't mean to be uh, uh, not with the, so offhanded. Uh, it, it really was until I just determined to I'm going to meditate. I set a time for myself that I slowly moved back, but I knew that I was almost always home at 7 o'clock. So at 7 o'clock, I'm going to sit no matter what. And I just started doing it. And I did it the way that I teach all of us, is I started with five minutes. Even though at the time I was probably meditating, I'm not even meditating for 45 minutes in the morning at that time. I told myself, all right, just going to start with five minutes, but I'm going to do it every day. And more, for the most part, I did that five minutes every day and, and gradually, but not too long, I had a, a daily practice. So that, that's all. It was just a practical way. Um, you can look at, and if you're having difficulty establishing that and even generating the intention, read the Buddha's teachings on right effort. Just do a, uh, a search on the website. And he'll, that helps reinforce what we're doing. And part of right effort is the continuation of practice on a daily basis. So. A great question, John. Isn't that one of the, the hindrances too? Mm. Yes, thank you. Which one is it? it well, it, it, there's a few in there. It, doubt can keep us off, but but laziness or sloth is the word I use, which is really what laziness is is a an aspect of um, a distracted mind. Restlessness and worry. I'm interrupting it, you. It's yeah. restlessness. Yeah. Restlessness and worry. It's, will always I, contribute I don't to have that. time. I don't have time. Is restlessness. Yeah. yeah. Like on our cushion, we'll think, yeah, I'm just too busy. Uh, and, you know, the truth of the matter is that we become much more efficient people, period. We have much more time in our lives when we meditate a little bit. Even if you just do tell yourself, okay, you, you don't have time for five minutes, I have time for two minutes. Yeah, thank you, Jenna. And That's then right. set, a, set an alarm, too, at 7 p.m. or whatever time you feel like you set an alarm on your phone. That's what I did. And then, okay, the alarm goes off. Oh, I'm in the middle of something. All right. Two minutes, then. Just do it. Yeah. yeah. Just do it. Thank you, John. <laughs> yeah, so I had, it, it, the answer is just, just do it. So. <laughs> I just schedule meetings with myself and just walk my calendar. That's a good idea, yeah. Yeah, I, it, 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 it's such an individual practice, and then there's things that we have to do, and that's, that's one of it. But that, the, it, it also points to the, um, the individual nature of the practice. In other words, I can't, um, nobody can meditate for you, can you? We can, the Buddha and your teacher, and as you teach other people, you can only suggest what people do. Um, I have somebody uh, here um, who was coming for many, many years, and the only time they would meditate was when they came to class. But they kept coming. That's the, the point I'm using, is they kept coming to practice. They kept doing it. They kept exposing themselves to it and integrating it. And now they, they, they practice, uh, they, have, they probably meditate at least five times a year. I'm just kidding. They, they, they now have a full time and, and they become one of our I'm talking about Ram here uh, he's, he's, uh, you've heard me say that Ram is if you look up right effort in the, in the dictionary you'll see his picture along with David and everybody else's but the, persistence, keep doing it um, and if you're not meditating twice a day tomorrow Tom be gentle with yourself and try it the next day and remember that Ram still has a, an issue with doing the afternoon the session, session. Yeah. yeah I gotta set all of them on my phone again but it'll come, you know. <clears throat> I can't. I couldn't. I, I. I don't think I've missed an afternoon sit, no matter what I've been doing, just because it's become such a routine. I don't think about it. You know? So that's kind of a nice thing. Um, before I let you go, Alex and and uh, and, and Tom, I just want to think as I'm thinking about it. Um, it's a week from this Thursday. We're having our next class, correct? The third Thursday. Okay, so it's a week from this Thursday. 
And did you say something about you'd like me to send the email earlier to you? Yes. So we have a bit uh, longer to read it. Yeah. So I mean, feel free to send it any time over the coming days. And, and okay. Well, I want to I want to send it that week though, just so it's timely. But you'll notice in the emails that that I think I have the Thursday class mentioned what what it's going to be on. I think in all the emails now. And so oh, it's already it, mentioned. Isn't I it? think so. But so should I send the email out? Um, uh, say Tuesday morning as opposed to Wednesday morning. Yeah, at, at least because with the time difference, if you send out, I mean, that still only gives people two nights to. All right, then what? It's probably okay. It's probably okay, but. Well, I'll, I'll send it out on Sunday, but then I'll just get included in the Sunday I've email. Just checked, uh, John, the third, the third Thursday of the month is actually this coming Thursday. Is it okay? Um, well, then I won't. Well, I'll, yeah, I'll put it in tomorrow's email then. So I'll just send the email out on Sundays and, and Thursdays like I do now. Awesome. All right, Great. good. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Alex. Hi, John. Hello, everybody. Um, yeah, thanks for that today. I, I, I've been away for a few weeks. So it's just nice to be back and re-engage. And my meditation practice has uh, had a bit of a... Definitely had a bit of a dip, but this week I've definitely got back into the swing of things, which is really nice. Um, just had to shift things. Maybe I, I just meditated in a site in a different room. I just think I was getting a bit s still, a bit. I don't know. Some, the, 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 the routine was just getting a bit repetitive. And, um, Did that help, Alex? Definitely, yeah. Huh. And, and with someone else, one of my housemates meditates and. He does his thing and I do mine, but we meditate together and it's just re-energized my practice. Um, I was talking to you a couple of weeks ago about being online so often. Like, I really you know, miss the in-person stuff. So yeah, I'm, I'm feeling um, good this week. Um, and yeah, good to re-engage with, with the teaching. And it's a good question from Tom because I life's now coming back here with lockdown easing. So I'm not working from home so much. And, when I was working from home, the second meditation was fine because I was at home, but now it's like finding the space to do it. Um, quite a funny story, actually. I, I, try, I tried to meditate in a, in a toilet, in a public toilet. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I just that's dead, that, that's right effort. For. <laughs> <laughs> and I locked the door and I was in there and then after a while I heard someone peeing and zipping up their flies and, I, and then I came out and realized it was Tom. So that was, that was <laughs> Peeing on your meditation. I don't know what the learning is there, but <laughs> at least he knows I made an effort. Um, yeah. So there you go. Um, oh gosh. What would you do? You, have you ever found somewhere in a public space that, like, my old work workspace used to have like a restroom, and that was really good. I'd go there and meditate. But um, some places have like a prayer room, don't they? Yeah. It's just a shame yeah. we don't have more of that. Airports. Yeah, air, airport. I, every hospital yeah. that I've ever been in has a chapel, you know. Yeah. You can find hospitals. Um, anyway, that, that's been getting in, my, in the way of my second meditation is where to do it. Because if I'm in the office, it's, it's difficult. And I, I don't want to listen to Tom peeing every time I meditate. <laughs> um, but anyway, I'm, I'm doing well. I don't have too much to add. It was, a, it was a really great teaching. I listened to last week's as well, and I really enjoyed that. Um, so, yeah, even though I've, I've missed... Uh, the sessions. I'm really grateful that you've put so much work into getting it all online and getting it on the podcast and, and stuff. So, 
you know, I've managed to keep up and I'm feeling uh, feeling back on track today. So thank you very much. Thank you. And you really can meditate. And it, I have a guy that's been coming here for many years and he's been meditating for many years and he meditates almost exclusively in his truck. And it happens to be bomb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every <Yeah>. day. <laughs> Adam, how are you? No, no reason to rush. Yes. Yeah. It's, 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 so it's exa- Pardon me? Thank you for this. Oh, it, it, thanks for, for joining us. Yeah, and, and it is, what you said is the, the simplicity of the Dhamma. It's just developing this. And we know how, to, how do we develop these ten understandings? Through an, an eightfold path. Nothing, you know, nothing is left to our conjecture, our speculation. And another, another reason why I think the Buddha was so very specific and repetitive is just that. He knew, he knew that the that a mind conditioned by ignorance is grasping after the, to maintain that ignorance. And this gets right through it. Thank you, Adam. Hello, Mary. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. Oh, James um, the, you know, all the instructions we need for life were included in this sutta, as mm-hmm. they are in most suttas. But it's always interesting to hear how it's parsed out differently um, from suttas to sutta. So this was very um interesting and helpful um i also wanted to respond to the second sit um you know i think you eventually start to look forward to the second sit um i'm also someone that sometimes i don't know what time it is and david walks through the door and i'm like oh my god has the (laughs) the day ended right um but the second sit really allows you to interrupt your work and everything that life has pulled you into for the day. So it's kind of giving you permission to let it go. And then you have a clearer view after that sit on what's most important. You know, I mean, I'm, I have a busy job and I have a fear of, you know, forgetting something or losing something off my radar if I don't write it down. So sometimes the first 10 minutes that I sit aren't in meditation. It's you know, getting ready to meditate, right? So letting things fall off my, you know, shoulders or out of my mind or whatever so that I can have a peaceful sit. So anyway, my two cents from another busy uh, manager. Um, But thank you, John. This was so instructional um, and so helpful, and I appreciate everyone's comments. So thank you. Thank you, Mary. Uh, Mark, how are you today? Mark, you want to... Sure, there you are. Thank you. Um, it's good to, good to hear everyone else's thoughts. Um, I didn't have too much to add, but... Um, I've recently started swimming a lot more, and... Um, oh, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. And the deeper I go, the more pressure there is. Um, and obviously, I want to get back to the surface to take a breath. And 
few times that I meditate, it feels like that. Um, it feels like you're under you're, you're underwater. It feels like the the moment I come from being deep underwater, which is most of the day, to when I come up for breath. That come up for breath feels like that's how meditation feels. It's it's like the pressure's released. Uh, maybe that's because of the compounding thinking, the constant calculations. Obviously, uh, navigating life and calculating what you're going to do tomorrow, etc. Um, but I, 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 I think you're having a real physiological experience, Mark. Yeah. I mean, it's our, it's our, you know, they're finding out now the effects of stress in the last 30 years. Medical science has been finding that stress is one of the major causes of disease. And stress is caused by too much thinking, is it, ultimately? And so as we quiet our thinking, we're lowering, I mean, even say if there's studies that say meditation lowers blood pressure. I don't know how I developed it, but it, I mean, it really has a, 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 an effect, doesn't it? So you're feeling the effects of the, the, the immediate practical effects of your meditation practice. Now, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but that was important. No, no, that's great. That's, that's exactly, yeah. exactly how it feels, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, let's go around before it gets too late. Ram. Yeah, John, good to be here again. Uh, it, it was interesting to see the very beginning of this sutta where you see um, this mindset. You know, he sees Jirmananda having a hard time and he asked the Buddha to go to him to give him some relief. And Buddha reminds him that Jirmananda's relief is going to come from his understanding, not from mm. my magical presence. Yeah. Mm. Remind him of that. Yeah, that's and that. It, it shows. It, it, I, I like this also because it, it shows where. Um, you know, I, I, we've talked about this before, where how uh, Ananda has had this, you know, obsession basically in his life. You know, his 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 major attachment has been, I am the Buddha's <coughs> caretaker. You know, yeah. and and in all the all the suttas that 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 he remembers, you know, you, when you look at them, you know, you see that Ananda's presence there, because he's, he's the narrator. He's, yeah. he's talking about this. You know, when, 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 you, when you read about Pukasati in, 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 the, in the little hut, you know, Ananda's sitting there. Yeah. He's listening to all this. You know, he's, he's, he's watching uh, the Buddha teaching Bahia. Yeah. Um, but it all comes from, from him being completely identified with, with that role. Yeah. Which made it, you know, which is why he, he did not get to awakening until after the Buddha passed away. Yeah. That's right. <clears throat> well said, my friend. Good morning, Jen. I just love this sutta. It's, you know, if I was going to teach a Dhamma course, it would be the, it's just so... Well, remind me next time we go through it. Right, I mean, your like the, yeah, the professor's Dhamma teaching. It's just for general broad strokes. It, ca it captures everything. I mean, I know we always say, like, this, the, the, the entire teaching is in every sutta, but I, this one feels like you can, you can, yeah. all the things that you need to explain, 
um, in one little spot mm-hmm. to me here. Right. I, it just, I, I just love the sutta. Right. Um, and, you know, it's, it feels to me like one that is relatable to, you know, the newcomer and to yeah. somebody who's been practicing a long time. It's, it's valuable for, for, it's timeless. You know, it's like the classic sweater that you can buy and wear for 20 years. It's just... That's all? That's all I got. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Yeah. my crest. Hello, David. Thank you, There's quite a few suttas with this theme that Ananda or Sariputta and Ananda will approach the Buddha. Uh, and sometimes much more serious, like there's a... A saga member who is to the point of wanting to kill himself, mm-hmm. and the Buddha sends them off with a short teaching, and it teaches all of us that we all have that ability to take it back to someone else. Okay. And with these basic premises, it, it's it's within each of us to you know help someone get back on track yeah. and uh, you know sometimes it's not going to make someone happier or necessarily solve their illness but that understanding is what the Buddha is saying take yeah. back with you so yeah. I, I like this themed teaching so thank you yeah. thank you Dave good morning Tommy how are you good morning John thank you for your teaching my pleasure you know, I, I relate to this um, in recovery as the steps. Okay. And um, okay. there's a big section here, which is prayer and meditation, you know, in, in my, my other practice. Um, the 11th step is prayer exa- and meditation. Exactly. So, so that, of course, is the springboard into uh, all of this, <laughs> which is sort of interesting stuff, okay. i got to say. Um, but there's a practical aspect, of course, you know, which is, you know, don't uh, don't drink and don't do this and don't do that and then take on the path. Um, so uh, I, I I just was taken by the, the breathing uh, because so often I catch myself not breathing, you know, just be doing it. And I go and immediately we're, we're kind of a change. It's funny because it, one would think it's automatic, but in fact. It can be lessened and increased depending on mm. your presence to it. And yeah. it's a, another practical thing because if you stop, you'll be on the ground. Mm. So um, it's great and I enjoy it. And, and you know, it's also just, I, I don't think I really grasp about half of what you say. But I don't either, so I But what's important for me is that calmness of mind or listening to and having an opportunity to be in a calm place. Yes. Wow, thank you, Lord. True thank refuge. Thank you, Chen. <laughs> thank you, Tommy. And again, you're recognizing these maybe subtleties of the Dhamma that are so important, such as establishing a real refuge that we can come to. Mm-hmm. Right? Again, and vibration Buddha, energy. Pardon me? Vibration energy. Yeah, the, the Buddha didn't, even, even the idea of the triple refuge is not something that he just thought, well, that'd be cool, you know, let's call it this. He knew the importance of seeing him as a human being who awakened. He knew the importance of practicing a pure Dhamma. And he knew the importance of a well-focused, well-informed Sangha. And we can see it here, too. It's a true refuge. Thank you, John. Yeah, thank you. Hello, Becky. Hey, good morning. Thank you, John. 
<clears throat> um, I don't really have too much. I just enjoyed listening to what everybody had to say. And uh, I just love the line that when the mind is in the body, it is home. Yeah. I never really thought of it that way. Yeah. And, you know, when you're home, you are relaxed and calm and peaceful and equanimous. 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 So that, that's a really nice, a nice analogy. Yeah. The mind is in the body, it's home. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Becky. Uh, thank you all. We'll, uh, we're going to continue with this class on uh, Tuesday. Um, and I will, uh, I think it's already in the email, but I'll include Thursday's class. Uh, so we have a Thursday class this Thursday at 2.15. Uh, room opens at 2 o'clock. Any of you that can join us, please do so. And, uh, including Jen, I was thinking about that the other day. It came up too that Jen gave this great uh, oh, presentation on the Thursday class about the uh, maintaining the integrity of a few different, which might have been com competitive practices and keeping it clear uh, and gaining benefit out of both of them. Jen did a great job on that too. Um, all right, we'll finish with Meta as we always do. And these are the Buddha's words on Meta from the Karaniya Meta Sutta as restored by the Amaravati Monastery in London, England. The Buddha's words. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise will later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.